This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, political columnist and former Fox News political editor Chris Steyerwalt discusses his book, Broken News, Why the Media Rage Machine Divides America and How to Fight Back. He argues that the media puts profits over good journalism. So I think there's lots of good media criticism. I think most media criticism is trash, uh, and most media criticism uh, is uh, indicative of the problem I'm trying to talk about in this book, which is that it's a refuge for partisans. Uh, We don't want to talk about what our side did, so let's talk about the coverage of what our side did. So this this is not my happy place. Mr. Steyerwalt was fired from Fox News after the 2020 election. He's interviewed by Reason Magazine editor and Reason Roundtable podcast host, Matt Welch. There are a lot of books out there critical of the performance of the media and the journalism industry. Why do we need another one and what's different about yours? (laughs) Well, uh... I guess uh, hopefully it's got some jokes in it. Um, Hopefully it is uh, an engaging and I hope engrossing read. I think I, as a journalist, do not have much interest in media criticism, right? It is not, uh, I have a joke about it, which is that it's like asbestos abatement. Uh, It's it's hazardous. (laughs) You need specialized equipment and it's best left to the professionals. So I think there's lots of good media criticism. I think most media criticism is trash. uh, And most media criticism uh, is uh, indicative of the problem I'm trying to talk about in this book, which is that it's a refuge for partisans. Uh, We don't want to talk about what our side did. So let's talk about the coverage of what our side did. So this is not this is not my happy place. But I had a weird experience professionally, and I think we're all sort of having a weird experience professionally or uh, as citizens, which is this stuff is, you know, the the changes that have gone through uh, our industry uh, in the past 20 years, you know, it's it's been a lot. (laughs) There's been a lot going on. And I think we're at a time where people are really hungry for uh, for us to uh, for the learning curve to steepen and for for us to get better faster. There, you talk about, um, uh, not uh, to, at great length in the book, what happened to you at Fox News when you were uh, let go uh, after being part of the team that called uh, Arizona for Joe Biden in 2020 earlier than other networks did. Uh, but you do say it's, it was part of the motivation for you writing the book. So explain what happened there and how that fits into the problem that you are identifying. So I went into the 2020 election cycle. Um, I didn't understand the way that the world had changed. Um, uh, I have uh, been part of calling races that made Republicans unhappy before. Trust me, when Fox called uh, Ohio for Barack Obama in 2012, I was not getting any love notes from the Romney campaign, right? Nobody was like, oh, thanks thanks for that. I had sort of assumed that we were persisting in that the consensus that grew out of really the 1990s, right? The world changed dramatically. The media world changed dramatically in the 1990s with both the rise of cable news, uh, particularly led by Fox, uh, but also, of course, uh, Internet and all of that. So I thought we were sort of still in the same space. What I failed to apprehend 
was that after so many years where viewers, readers, listeners, whomever, could be so effectively cosseted, could be so effectively flattered and uh, protected, right? So in a a highly uh, segmented media marketplace, there is a lot of incentive for outlets to uh, treat these viewers like little Fabergé eggs, right? You don't want to tell them things they don't want to hear. Uh, you don't want to uh, impinge on the sort of climate-controlled reality uh, that addicted news consumers are able to maintain for themselves. If you want to, in America today, you can rise <clears throat> uh, in the morning, and from, from that moment until you go to bed, you could, re- you could process information that reinforced your worldview, that said that you were good and they were bad, that you were smart and they were dumb, uh, and that you were virtuous and patriotic, and they weren't just wrong, but they were trying to, to destroy the country. <clears throat> if I show up in your feed all of a sudden and say, hey, the guy who you believe is the, the only thing standing between the United States and oblivion uh, is going to be replaced by a puppet of the uh, Communist Party of China, uh, if I tell you that, if that's what you hear, you're going to be upset. And that's what made me understand, you know, we, the, the quest for a, uh, a media model that works, that is profitable and also responsible, uh, we're, we're in need, right? And I think the events of the past six years, the rise of Trump, coverage during the pandemic, coverage of January 6th, January 6th itself, all of that stuff points to we have a problem that is, uh, it, it is it is a problem of abundance, right? It is a problem related to uh, too much, but I think we are uh, we're in serious need as journalists and as citizens uh, to do our patriotic duty, which is if you love this country, you have to have a journalism that uh, honors the freedoms that we enjoy here. That's a, a fine, broad assessment of the industry and also an encapsulation of your book. But what happened to you? You got, you got canned for doing your work? What happened over there at Fox News? Fox News does not owe me a job. Uh, Fox News can have anybody they want on their news because it's their news. And I am very grateful for the time that I had at Fox. I <clears throat> love, uh, in the building where I'm recording this, uh, is the same as Fox News Washington Bureau. And I spent a very happy most of, uh, uh, mostly happy decade uh, uh, in this building with my dear colleagues, people like the great Bill Salmon, my boss, Chris Wallace, Brett Baer, uh, a great group of journalists. And the Washington Bureau was a wonderful place to be because, you know, we were substantially left alone to do our thing. And it was great to be part of the decision desk and all of that. Fox had, uh, I've, I've heard a bunch about why I got fired. I can tell you I definitely was, <laughs> uh, but that's okay because uh, I know that nobody owes me a job, number one. And number two, this is not uh, – I know this business, right? I've been working in this business since I was 17 years old. Uh, it is remarkable to me that I have been able to persist low these many years, right, since I started as a full-time professional journalist in 1997, 1998, Uh in all of those years, I have managed to make a living and support man-children, right, uh, uh, to, do, to be a dad and to be a working journalist for all of those years. 
to me, it feels like I've gotten away with the greatest caper, right? It, that, that people would pay me for what I write uh, and my analysis is totally awesome. So I'm, I'm not complaining. You talk about kind of an accelerating sense of people, of news outlets, kind of cosseting their consumers and telling them what they want to hear. Um, can you explain briefly, as we're still talking about cable, the cable news aspect of it, which I think we probably all over uh, pay attention to because it's kind of where the most active consumers of uh, certain types of political news gather, uh, even though it's, you know, at its height, it's three and a half, four million viewers um, uh, on the most popular show. But can you talk about what used to be something of a division between a news uh, uh, desk uh, at a MSNBC, CNN or Fox um, and even a, a separation between the day side, as they call it, um, uh, programming with the evening opinion mongers. Is there, there used to be a division. That division seems to be um, uh, disappearing over time. What can you, like, for people who are not familiar with the business, can you spell that out a little bit? So the, uh, the way it worked when I started at Fox, uh, and I think this was the concept uh, across cable news, uh, was that you have the news division and you've got the opinion division and that they're, they're two separate things in the same way that the news pages of a newspaper and the editorial section. So maybe you can detect a slant in the coverage of this outlet versus that outlet, but it's supposed to be basically USDA, meet USDA minimum standards for journalism. Now, it's always been a little different for MSNBC because they have uh, NBC News. And the NBC News, NBC News doesn't uh, arrange itself around MSNBC, or at least it hasn't in my experience. Uh, its goal, it, it's focused on the 6 o'clock news, right? They're thinking about Lester Holt. Uh, they're not thinking about feeding the beast of uh, cable news. And so, that, so it's always worked a little differently for uh, NBC. That's been to their advantage in terms of the resources they have. Uh, but it also has been a sort of a limiting reagent on some of the opinion mongering uh, leaking in. We're watching CNN now go through a dramatic remaking of itself because CNN had uh, tried to own the model of just the news, right? When, and, and for a long time, you could track in the ratings. When there was big national or international news, CNN would boom because everybody who doesn't normally watch news, 24-hour news, uh, would turn it on as a reliable source. But then as soon as the crisis or whatever would be over, CNN's ratings would plummet. So in the Trump era, they really leaned in on really obsessive Trump coverage, right? It got thick over It got really thick over there. Uh, and they leaned all the way in. Well, now they have a new uh, president in Chris Licht, and they have new ownership. And the objective is to get back to balance, right? To get back to aspirational fairness. So they're trying to unwind a commercial decision that they made. Um, I, I quote in the book uh, the Les Moonves, the former head of Viacom and CBS, uh, who said of Donald Trump, you know, it may be bad for the country, but it's great for Viacom, CBS. So keep going, Donald. Ha, ha, ha. Um, I think a lot of networks, and I think Fox is included in that, Trump was a ratings bonanza. And people were so terrified, either thrilled or terrified. Uh, he, the, the, the uh, either... Uh, the, it was a limbic response from American news consumers of either delight uh, or real fear and anger. And 
those forces uh, created incentives for these networks to go really heavy on Trump from the beginning. Uh, and uh, we see sort of the wreckage, the after, you know, after the party, uh, it's sort of time to clean up. You quote on a couple of occasions uh, some of the journalistic essay writing of George Orwell from the 1930s and 1940s, which was a period of time when people had kind of lost faith in liberal democracy, in uh, things like truth seeking for its own sake, and it was against a backdrop of incipient fascism. There are a lot of people in the media who see the rise of Trump as being uh, incipiently fascist or authoritarian. Um, and so they think that what the media needs to do is to abandon what they uh, call both sidesism right. and to call out, um, as Margaret Sullivan, who's um, the former uh, public editor of the New York Times and the Washington Post columnist for uh, several years, in her final column in August in uh, the Washington Post, she said that it's journalists' job to tell their readers that uh, electing Donald Trump uh, is a threat to democracy itself. Um, Since they share at least some of your foreboding about uh, the populist authoritarian wins, why do you think they're wrong in their approach about how to respond in the media? Well, uh, I I will let Margaret Sullivan in on a little something. Uh, The uh, readership of the Washington Post agrees with her. Uh, the readership, she's already, she's already got them, right? She's, she is already, the, the, the loyal subscribers to the Washington Post probably skew, and I don't know, this is not research in the book, but let's guess and say that it's at least 70% Democratic, right? You, it's the hometown paper for a very Democratic, uh, I don't know, what do we call Washington a big city? Let's say a medium, a medium big city, um, but so the Washington Post's readership is skews liberal and democratic. The histrionic, and I think the Post is a good example of this, um, when uh, there was uh, a, I forget, I'm, I apologize, I can't remember the name of the media scholar, journalism scholar, who uh, said that the Post was optimizing for anger better after failing to cash in on this Trump bonanza. So that's when the Post goes to democracy dies in darkness, and that's when the clickbaitiness of these headlines for online consumption go crazy. I chronicle in the book how on the day of the fall of Kabul, right, which to that point was the biggest foreign policy story in a long, long time, right? Uh, On that day, the number one story at the Washington Post was a sneering uh, slap together from press releases and archives story about a Roman Catholic cardinal who was in the hospital with coronavirus and he had been against the vaccines, which is a ha, ha, ha kind of trashy story. And that is what, look, the journalists who believe that we have the power to tell people what to think uh, should remember that it is more likely that our audience will tell us what to think than we to them. Right. We don't have the power. Look, Republicans spend a lot, a lot of time complaining about the media. Oh, my gosh. Uh, And we often hear it because uh, we like it. Part of us. Right. It may be condemnatory, but at least it says we have power. At least it Mm -hmm. says we have this enormous power to shape these things. We don't. And what many journalists have sacrificed in the era of Trump. uh, I, I hearken back to a great speech Chris Wallace gave. I forget what. 
uh, well-deserved honor. He was what award for excellent journalism that he was receiving. Uh, but he, he gave a stern talking to to a group of very, what, how do we say now, legacy or elite uh, media outlets, gave them a stern talking to about the fact that what we have to do our work is objectivity. Our remove, and we know that we won't be objective, and we know that uh, fairness is aspirational and it's, a, it's something we're not really going to obtain, but it is our remove from the, the, the game that gives us the pa- whatever power we do have. And uh, it, could, it can be true that Donald Trump represented a unique threat to the First Amendment uh, and a free press in the United States. That can be true. And at the same time, it can be true that the press badly, badly botched its response to it. Because instead of elevating uh, and going back to first principles and basics, many got down in the mud with him to wrestle. And that was a big mistake. The response back from a lot of people in the media criticism establishment, if we can call it that, um, for instance, Brian Stelter, who's a, a reliable sources program, was uh, uh, canceled by CNN in, uh, in August, um, is that we are living through an asymmetry right now between the two major parties, uh, between the people who support them, um, and that one side is uniquely uh, hostile to truth. Um, you know, the Republicans are out there electing people who flat disagree with your call of the Arizona vote even today. Um, and they're campaigning on it and winning in Arizona, among sure. other places. And so because of that, the normal uh, kind of both sides, Republican says this, Democrat says that, um, is actually a way to allow people who are wrong, who are illiberal um, uh, in the classical sense, uh, who are wrong about the truth um, and who have authoritarian aims, um, giving them kind of equal weight to the side of truth. What's your response to that as an approach? David Leonhardt, who is uh, a a good writer and whose uh, uh, work on uh, uh, economics uh, I have uh, drawn a lot from over the years, writes a newsletter uh, for the New York Times. And uh, a a while back he wrote one, it was after the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, and he said, this Supreme Court (laughs) is out of hand. Uh, this Supreme Court is, is superseding the appropriate role of Congress, and this Supreme Court, da-da-da-da-da. And I had to laugh because it was like, oh, now you know how conservatives felt <laughs> for the previous 50 years. Um, a lot of what's going on uh, around the things that you describe is, again, it's true that the authoritarian bent inside the Republican Party is scary intense, Right. Uh, the the yearning for a strong man for authoritarianism uh, among many a, a a disconcertingly large number of Republicans uh, is something that should be concerning to everybody right so there's that piece and it's true but I think part of the problem is that in the media world the existence of this thing um, I don't think that most conservatives. And here I'm talking not just about these uh, authoritarian yearnings, but of real conservatives, right? People of the of the mainstream, traditional Calvin Coolidge, Ronald Reagan variety of conservatism in America. Those people don't think that those people thought that the left was authoritarian. 
Those people thought that the left, and still do think, that the le- that progressivism is authoritarian and that progressivism is crushing to uh, the hopes and dreams of humanity and that it is the rise of this, a socialist authoritarian state. They believe that. Uh, people on the left seeing sort of the, the dystopian nightmare that they had been warning of for a long time. Uh, take, for example, this. Who would have had on their bingo card left venerates Cheney family, right? Who would have said, who would have said, boy, you know, liberals are really going to dig the Cheneys. You'd say, no, they want to put the Cheneys in prison. What are you talking about? But because of the, Donald Trump represents uh, what many liberals or many progressives 20 or 15 years ago thought was underneath Bushism or neoconservatism or whatever else. So, I, I think we have some category errors that are going on uh, in people's thinking about how this stuff works. You have a quote uh, near the uh, end of the book um, saying, the percentage of news coverage that is either explicitly or implicitly political is so unhealthful in large part because it creates a false impression that politics itself is a worthwhile passion. Take it from a man who has devoted his professional life to politics and elections <laughs> It is not. Uh, so did you bury the lead uh, and or is this a, a hostage slash suicide note? Uh, no, uh, <clears throat> I think political coverage is awesome. I think it's great. But I'm supposed to be the weatherman, right? I'm not supposed to be the lead of the news, except for when it's election time, Right. I'm supposed to be the thing like, well, Chris, let's check in with Chris and see what goofy stuff is going on in the world of politics. That's good. What do the polls say? What is all that stuff? That's fine. What happened over the past 20 years is, in my experience, is that politics is the shortcut to uh, intensity and uh, strong emotional connection. Uh, Politics is is the shortest way, especially in national media, right? partisanship of the kind, this, this intense, toxic, negative partisanship that we're experiencing in America today is partly a function that there's not enough national news that really affects all Americans to talk about all day, right? There just isn't. Uh, if you live in, the, and, and think about how much of the national news narrative is about really kind of dragging or nutpicking, right? So is it, if you are a conservative and you live in Alabama, or let's say Florida, if you're a conservative or a Republican and you live in Florida, you are being told about drag queen story hours taking place uh, in Washington state as far away from you as possible. It has no consequence on your child's school or anything, but it can be a big, big story. Conversely, if you live in Washington state, you can hear endlessly about Ron DeSantis's uh, don't say what they call the don't say gay bill. Uh, in Florida, it will have no effect on your life. It doesn't affect your kids or their education. But you can hear about it and be outraged about it if you want, if you choose. And news providers who are trying to provide too much national news. Look, I think a big, big part of all of this is local is should come first, right? Local should come first. We should think about news uh, in concentric circles around us. And there just isn't that much national news that a person needs to consume in a day. Uh, And politics news is one of the only places where national news outlets know that they can reliably go where it will have meaning, 
uh, and relevance across the country. So, it, and also, by the way, it's cheap. It's real cheap to do. Uh, the saying in, in TV news is talk is cheap. It's real expensive to send crews out to go interview people and get the story. Investigative journalism is really hard because most of your leads don't deliver the blockbuster stories that you want. It's expensive. It's time-consuming. It's hard to do well. You need top-notch people to do it. You know what's not hard? Uh, putting two fat heads in a studio and having them yak at each other. Uh, you've already bought the studio. You already ha- have the crew. So, you know, why not do that? And so much of what is on TV uh, and and also its versions online is just that. And that's that that's a low nutritive quality food. That's junk food uh, as opposed to the kind of journalism that we should be doing. You talk a lot in the book, It's uh, if I could characterize it, um, about half of it is aimed towards the media itself and about half of it is aimed towards the consumers. There's a demand side problem or issue here as well, which uh, often does not get fully explored. Can you talk a little bit about um, what are the mechanics? Why do we get to this kind of national versus local uh, conception of politics and deliverage of, uh, of uh, political coverage and also just, you know, uh, covering policy as politics? I will, get, I will get these numbers a little wrong, but just to give you uh, the, the idea. The newspaper industry did not reach its peak profits until 2005. Uh, oh, and by the way, interestingly, peak viewership for television uh, on average per American household We've heard a lot about cord cutting <clears throat> and all of that jazz. It didn't hit its peak until 2011 uh, at something like almost nine hours a day. Uh, woof. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, th- those industries were really making tons of money well into, not well into, but in the beginning of the 21st century. And when the newspaper industry started to collapse in 2005, it fell totally apart. And it's something like $50 billion, $55 billion or something in lost revenue. And it was a 90% or something decline. When you look at the chart, you just see it, it's peaking and the and ad revenue for newspapers is doubling pretty reliably uh, every 10 or 15 years going back to the uh, Second World War that, you know, this is working. And then it falls off the cliff. It fell off the cliff, uh, not because of social media. It fell off the cliff because started with there's great uh, survey research on this, uh, or there's great there's great uh, market research on this. When uh, do, do you remember? Um, oh, what's the name of the uh, where you could post uh, something that you were trying to sell or uh, buy Craigslist? When Craigslist, so they documented when Craigslist came to town. Newspapers took a beating, right? They were living off of these classified ads, living off of legal ads. And the newspaper industry was badly over-leveraged because you could always borrow money to buy a newspaper because newspapers in those days were making, no joke, you know, 30% profits. But it was uh, profits in the low 20% range were expected. So you had all of this uh, conglomeration. You had all of these big newspaper chains that bought up newspaper after newspaper after newspaper, but they were heavily leveraged. So when the profit stream started to shift, what did the newspaper industry do? They did exactly the wrong thing, which is they cut content. They cut the content at a time when they should have muscled up 
and they couldn't because of some of the over-leveraging, but also it was just dumb kind of corporate thinking, which is, okay, revenues are down, we've got to cut. Where are we going to cut? We're going to cut in the newsroom. We're going to get rid of reporters. And we, I, I document in the book the, the bloodbath uh, of newspaper uh, and news reporters as a category uh, in the American workforce over this period. It is, it is I, my heart aches for so many friends. I mean, I had a newspaper basically close uh, out from underneath me in West Virginia. Uh, I uh, have part of the reason I'm so uh, sanguine about, you know, the, the disruptions to my career in the past few years is this is an industry where, you know, people get fired a lot. Uh, things, but newspapers close, stations change, whatever. But the newspaper industry responded to these pressures by stupidly cutting content. The thing that actually gives them a competitive advantage, right? They had the newsrooms. They had the local knowledge to do that. But they didn't do the right thing, and they slashed. And so this giant void opens up. And the consequences for communities across the country have been dire. Uh, there's uh, a very persuasive research that says that in communities where a newspaper closed, that the cost of borrowing money, of bond issuance, goes up dramatically. And they can document the rise because nobody's watching, right? If there's nobody at your county commission meeting, boring, sitting there listening to you prattle on, then you're not going to be as good at running your county, right? Uh, and corruption uh, might sneak in a little bit. It's like the ring of gaijis. Maybe if, you know, if nobody's watching, I'm going to try to do good and I'm going to try to help my friends. And pretty soon your brother-in-law's got the, got the contract to issue the bonds or you're just not running the county as well and the prices go up. So this hollowing out and, and the devastation that rolled through the local news industry, what came in to fill that? Well, dumb, political, national blabbermouth, right? Uh, that came in, and the, we turned the telescope around. Instead of being focused on what's around us and the news that actually matters in our lives, uh, the, as it would happen in the 1990s in the aughts, what else was going on, right? As the local news industry is, is sinking to the bottom of the ocean, uh, what's happening nationally? Cable news segmentation uh, and, of course, the rise of social media. So what filled the void was not healthy. And I think we are only sort of just now coming out of the stupor. There's a lot of good news on the local news front. There's a lot of good things that are happening. Uh, but uh, this is a, a long, painful rebuilding process. Speaking of blabbermouths and races to the bottom, I think it's a, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a stiff competition between uh, the journalism industry and Congress for having the lowest public approval rating of any sector in the country, um, it might be counterintuitive to some people watching to hear that you think that there is a, a relationship between the abdication, the self, the willing abdication of responsibility by Congress and the blabbermouthization of our politics. Can you talk about that a little bit? Lord, yes. Uh, the uh, I, I did not ever expect that I would be quoting Florida Congressman Matt Gates in a book, uh, but uh, I did. Because he said in his book, and he wrote a book, uh, he said in his book that uh, the real people who run the country are the bookers uh, on cable news networks. And that they're the ones who decide, and they really pick the presidents, and they really do this stuff. And he was both, he was sneering about them, saying that these were you know, theater nerds from high school. I don't know what kind of nerd Matt Gates was in high school, but the theater, <laughs> but the theater department was cool, bro. It was cool. 
uh, the, uh, that these people are really running the country. Well, they ain't, right? Uh, they're 27 years old, and they're trying to afford their apartment uh, in a slightly sketchy part of Hoboken, right? They're not running anything. The people who are running things, uh, my, my friend and colleague Jonah Goldberg uses the phrase parliament of pundits, uh, and we have a Congress that wants my job. I don't want to do their job. I am not interested in being a member of Congress. Lord, hear my prayer for, the, for my own good and for the good of the nation. I am not interested in being in politics. I am interested in analyzing politics and talking about political trends and voting trends and how this stuff goes. I'm fascinated by it. Um, but they don't want to do their work. They want to get reelected. And the way that they want to get reelected is by being famous and being viral and being on television. And to do those things, you can't do your job well. Uh, the way it used to work in Congress long ago, as my old daddy would have said, uh, when the ships were made of wood and men were made of iron, uh, long ago in the before times, the way that Congress worked was that people weren't paying that much attention to Congress, right? Uh, it was boring, and Washington was boring, and the coverage was boring. And every, every newspaper, every major newspaper had a bureau in Washington, uh, and the newspaper chains had bureaus here that would provide coverage. And what they would say is, uh, you know, uh, Senator uh, Hornswoggle uh, gave an exclusive interview to us here at the Austin American Statesman or whatever to talk about how what's in the bill uh, will bring a new dam or a road or what it's going to do. Or the, uh, this military base is going to be shut down, but that one's going to be reopened. And a lot of that news about Congress had a, a locally facing feeling because they were... Uh, the the press was the way to communicate to the folks at home. Uh, But that's not necessary anymore. Uh, And the way to get famous... Look at uh, uh, Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis broke every rule for running in a Republican primary in Florida uh, when he was running against Adam Putnam. Adam Putnam had done everything right. He had paid all of his dues. He had served in Congress. Then he got elected statewide as agriculture commissioner. He had all the correct supporters, Jeb Bush, everybody. Everything lined up for Adam Putnam to be the governor of Florida in 2018. What did Ron DeSantis do? He went on Fox News. He went on Fox News every day, it seemed like. He was there, and shows were booking him, and he just went on Fox. And under the old thinking, this is a big mistake, right? Because people want you to be in their community. They want to see you at, you know, the Gator Wrestling or whatever they do. <laughs> whatever, whatever, whatever Florida's <laughs> version of a, of a West Virginia uh, ramp dinner uh, uh, or a bean dinner is. They, that's where they want to see you. And it's about being local and it's all that stuff. Well, Ron DeSantis didn't do any of that. And he crushed it, right? He crushed in that primary. And he was right. The uh, high saturation of Fox... Uh, among the Republican base, uh, particularly in Florida, where Fox does very well uh, and, you know, uh, beats the local news, right? Fox beats the local news uh, and national news in some of the markets in Florida. Uh, So that saturation that uh, DeSantis went for paid off. Now, that's a different thing, right? That's a different kind of thing. People talk about the Fox primary uh, on the Republican side. And I, you know, I, I don't think it's what uh, it, it is cracked up to be. I don't think it's as powerful uh, as Fox's supporters and detractors say. 
but you can't deny the, the potency and you can't deny how much of a part of any Republican strategy uh, Fox has to be. All right. I want you to bite the hand that is currently feeding you, Chris oh, Dyerwalt. Oh, oh. Tell us why you think it's a bad idea for C-SPAN to put its cameras in Congress and uh, further why it would be bad for the Supreme Court. And if you want to dodge all of that, maybe just get into the difference between uh, transparency and accountability. Well, first, let me say that I admire Brian Lamb and I love his project. I love what he uh, what what C-SPAN set out to do. And by the way, I love the other content on C-SPAN, right? Uh, this is such a privilege for me to get to be on this broadcast because I watch it. I think it's cool. So this is a, this is a nice treat for me. Brian Lamb is an American hero. Let's just say that for the record. Go on. Stipulate. And cool socks. Uh, so that's uh, stipulated. Now, I think we can say, and you can read about this. Uh, Steve Kornacki's great book, The Red and the Blue, talks about how the, uh, the uh, Newt Gingrich and the one-minute speeches uh, in the House where no one is listening, and they go down to the floor. Now, uh, RIP Jim Traficant uh, and, <laughs> and his one-minute speeches, but you go down to give a, uh, a, a, a thunderous denunciation of whatever, and because of the rules that Congress set for C-SPAN, it looks like you, don't, you can't tell that they're alone, right? You can't tell that it's an empty chamber and they're not talking to anybody. It looks like they're saying something. It must be important. Uh, they're, they're there uh, on the floor of the House. It must be important, but it's not. And there is, in social psychology, there is um, something that's like the social psychological version of the Heisenberg principle uh, from the hard sciences, that by observing something, we change it, uh, or that stuff. In the, uh, social psychology, we talk about the Hawthorne effect, uh, which came from, a, 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 I think it was a McCormick Electric plant, uh, the Hawthorne Works, uh, and they were doing a study uh, uh, for efficiency. I think this is the 20s. They're doing an efficiency study about how does lighting affect worker productivity. And what they found was regardless of the change in light, productivity went up everywhere. Um, and then they realized what it was. The workers knew they were being observed. And simply because they were being observed, they changed their behavior <clears throat> and worked harder uh, and were more efficient because they knew the bosses were watching. <clears throat> that had the same, the C-SPAN had the similar effect uh, in Congress. I don't want to take all the cameras out of Congress. I'm not saying that. But, but the committees, please, please get the cameras out of these committee rooms. Uh, it, it, there's a reason that the Senate Intelligence Committee is widely regarded as the best one, right? That it's the most bipartisan, most effective. Yes, the stakes are high, but also there's no camera. There's nobody to perform for. And, uh, you know, these apes, uh, when they get up there, you put that red light on. They see that camera out there. They know that if they get caught being an effective legislator. And what is, by the way, we heard a lot. Uh, about how the 2022 Republican primaries were a referendum on Trump, and no denying that. But it was also a referendum on, do you want a legislator or do you want a entertainer? Do you want somebody who will get things done or, and, and help your district or your state, or do you want somebody who's going to be a celebrity kind of politician? 
and performative junk won out. Uh, in my former home district, the first district of West Virginia, they pitted two uh, Republican members of Congress against each other, uh, David McKinley and Alex Mooney. Now, Alex Mooney couldn't get a post office name. That guy, to my knowledge, has never had any single serious legislative accomplishment, uh, but he is a fire-breathing MAGA Trumpster, whereas David McKinley, who has been a very effective legislator for his district and is quite conservative, uh, but because he had voted for... Uh, think about this. David McKinley voted for a transportation infrastructure bill that I guarantee you would would be popular in West Virginia to 70%, right? Uh, West Virginia, uh, ro- the, in memory of Robert C. Byrd, uh, West Virginians are cool with pork spending. They really like it. But in that primary, that thing that would have been popular with the general electorate was unpopular with Republican voters, and they, they went with Mooney over McKinley. And the the cameras in those committee rooms guarantee, and by the way, I want to give special acknowledgement here to the discipline that the January 6th committee was able to muster, right? I was expecting an Adam Schiff disaster, right? Uh, Performative, uh, histrionic, because, you know, these guys are mugging for the camera. They don't care whether the hearing is good. They just, they, they want to create the clip that they can fundraise off of, right? They want the story so that it can say, Ted Cruz destroys so-and-so, uh, you know, whoever it is, 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 is he ends Maisie Hirono. They want the clickbait. They want that stuff. And they don't care whether or not the hearing is effective. So we are deprived of the ability of these individuals to reason together. And we want them to reason together. We want committees to do their work. But instead, what we get is no regular order. Hearings uh, and markups are performances not actually reasoning together, and we this and, and so we have a Congress that won't be Congress. There have been periods in American politics where we've seen a surge of populism that has been associated with new uh, media technologies. Uh, you write in the book, uh, kind of the dawn of the republic, uh, the the mudslinging back and forth. Uh, uh, this great uh, video at my employer at uh, Reason about the, uh, the election of 1800 and oh. how just nasty, nasty that was. Um, but you also talk at pretty good length about the 1930s and the rise of radio and Huey Long and Father Coughlin, Coughlin I don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, uh, tell us how those fevers were broken. Uh, is there anything that we can glean from the way that those populist media-fueled moments passed that might give us some succor um, here in 2022, when we're still smack dab in the middle of a populist political moment. So radio, the rise of radio, was really good for bad people. Um, Adolf Hitler was aided enormously by the rise of radio so that his speeches could be broadcast uh, around Germany, around the world. Uh, radio was great for dirtbags like Huey Long uh, and uh, crazy lunatic racists like uh, Charles Coughlin. Uh, the, this, it was really effective because it allowed them... Huey Long had claimed to have uh, 7 million members uh, in his Share Our Wealth societies, and NBC was giving him a platform each and every week uh, to go on the radio and basically say, we're going to confiscate these fortunes Huey Long, a guy who said, people accuse him of being a dictator, and he uh, darn near was the dictator of Louisiana, um, 
he, here's a guy who tried to hold both the governorship and the Senate seat uh, of the same state at the same time. Uh, but Huey Long, when he said, you know, somebody said, people call you a dictator. He said, well, if I perfectly fulfilled the wishes of the people, wouldn't that look an awful lot like a dictatorship? And at a time in the 1930s where a lot of Americans, right, <clears throat> uh, uh, Joseph Kennedy, uh, the future president's father and ambassador to the court of St. James, uh, Charles Lindbergh, Henry Ford, a lot of people were of a mind that the American concept, Americanism, was finished, right? It was an, uh, it was an archaic system. It, it would not work anymore. We needed a modern, effective, efficient governance. Progressivism promised these things in the United States at the time, uh, but there was also a rise on the right about, hey, let's, you know, uh, let's get over these niceties and let's, let's go for strong men. And in that time, radio was hugely disruptive, right? Because it, it created a space for demagoguery in an emotionally connected way that just wasn't possible before. You could read a William Jennings Bryan speech, right? Uh, and you might find it thrilling, right? The people who read that he would not be crucified on a cross of gold uh, in the newspaper later, I mean, clearly it had an, a magnetic effect at the convention because the Democrats nominated him by acclamation based on one speech. He wasn't even in the running. But its effect would have been minimized around the country. By the 1930s, you know, you go from basically zero radio in America. Uh, in 1924, when KDKA broadcast the first radio station, broadcast its, uh, the, re- the results of the 1924 election, go Coolidge. Uh, there was no one in the radius of the broadcast to hear it because nobody would have had a set that could have tuned in to listen, but it, they were still broadcasting it. By the time you get to 1930, you have radios in like 80, 90% of homes. The, the disruption of, we, we rightly, these hand computers that we carry around uh, with uh, more power than the uh, Apollo, the computers that sent the Apollo astronauts to the moon, uh, we carry these things around, and we are rightly aware now of the huge disruptions that have followed. But we have to remember that radio itself was probably an even greater disruption because from time immemorial, from, you know, from the dawn of history, uh, the written word, our language was the way that we understood one another primarily, and the written word was how we organized ourselves uh, as societies. Uh, that was how we could understand here, especially in a big continental republic like ours, it, it had to be words, written words to get it done. The arrival of the possibility that you could hear Adolf Hitler screaming in and, and the, the screaming throngs around him and these incredible passions or Huey Long's thunderous denunciations, or, I mean, when you listen to the old tapes that uh, you can find of Long and Coughlin, it's scary because they're effective, right? You get goosebumps because they are effective in that way. And no one in the world, this was totally new. Uh, And the disruptions from television were just an, an intensification of that. But the real breakwater comes with radio, and it took us... A long time. Think about this. By the time, I forget which year Orson Welles did War of the Worlds, 38, 39, I forget. Um, but when Orson Welles did War of the Worlds, and, you know, the folks are stuffing damp towels under the, 
under the, the cracks in their under their door so that the Martian death gas does not get into their house. Even more than a decade in, we were still not super sophisticated con- consumers of radio. It is taking us a long time to get good uh, at these hand computers that we're carrying around uh, and this new way of consuming news and media. Uh, but I do believe that we are at least through the first part. And the first part is acknowledging that we're a little screwed up here and that things need that 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 corrections are necessary. A lot of people have different ideas about what corrections are are necessary uh, and what are the right steps to take. But at least I feel that we've gotten to a point of acknowledgement of the depth of the disruption and some of the consequences. You don't really get into it much in your book, but I'm curious to get your reaction. There's been a defection. Um, uh, You do talk about uh, how like post Trump, uh, at least post election, a lot of ratings and audience uh, cratered um, at a lot of media institutions because people, thank God, got back to other <laughs> other pursuits in their lives. Um, there has been uh, a, a also a defection, a, a talent, a brain drain away from uh, a lot of legacy media institutions. Not everyone got pushed out the door, Chris, um, but a lot of people, uh, you know, felt like they were about to um, and they started their own things. You see a rise in, uh, particularly in podcasts, the kind of Joe Roganization of life, uh, and on Substack. Do you see um, something that is encouraging there, or at least uh, analytically interesting, as people go away from our childhood model of like you subscribe to the newspaper, if not two or three, because that's part of your civic duty. It's your eat your Wheaties subscription model has now wither away and we have much more of a I like and affiliate with this person I trust this person even if I disagree with him or her I would uh, be happy to give them 10 bucks a month on Patreon or Substack or something well um, you know the media scholar Andre Mir uh, uh, calls it post journalism Uh, and in post journalism it's about a strong emotional connection with your audience right that it is that they feel a, it, in the old days it's top down. We have information. We're going to deliver it to you, and we're either going to sell the attention that you're paying us to advertisers, or you're going to pay us a subscription, and then we will give you access to the information that we have. Now uh, the energy goes the other direction, which is uh, the audience has feelings. Oh, do people have so many feelings? Oh my gosh! Uh, and they have strong feelings, and they want to see their feelings reflected back at them from the outlets or providers that they choose. Uh, And in these podcasts, and I have a podcast uh, in Substack, and I work uh, for the Dispatch, uh, which is on Substack, so I'm not uh, certainly not exempt from this. This is even narrower, right? Where it's sort of like if you, you, when you get together a group of, uh, let's say, libertarians, you said, okay, we're going to get a group of libertarians together. And this guy's like, well, no, 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 no. I'm like an anarcho-capitalist libertarian. Oh, okay, well, I'm actually like uh, a social welfare libertarian who's okay with the, a, a universal basic income. And you're like, wait, what? I thought you guys were libertarians. It's like, no, this is the, this is the niche of the niche of the niche uh, that I'm in politically. And you could say that for progressives and you could say it for anybody because we – define ourselves down very narrowly when we are highly engaged in news and politics. And one of the, look, I think in the long run, 
we'll all be dead. No. In the long <laughs> run, uh, things go through cons- periods of consolidation, and then they go through periods of atomization. We were in a long-term, highly consolidated news business from basically the end of the Second World War uh, to, pick your date, uh, let's say 1996 or 1997. So the world that the baby boomers grew up in was gate-kept and highly, highly consolidated. And then it all fell apart. And it's been going on now for, you know, 25 years or so, this falling apart. What will come out on the other side will be another consolidation, right? Uh, the, and you're seeing it already in local news. If you look at what's going on in the local news business, uh, people are buying up the, the, the refuse, right? They're, they're purchasing the shattered remains of newspapers. Uh, sometimes they're investing in doing good journalism. Other times they're just using it for U, uh, URL uh, to pump out pay-to-play junk. But the consolidation is happening nonetheless, and you can see it, and you will see it on Substacks and things like that. I heard the guy from uh, read an interview with the, one of the Substack founders who <laughs> was talking about how you know we're we're looking at having bundles where you can have you pay one rate and then you'll get uh, multiple uh, you'll get subscribed to multiple different Substacks for different points of uh, for different points of view and for different coverage areas. Uh, and I said, oh, you mean like a newspaper? Is that what you mean? <laughs> Is that you will curate and collect a group of uh, uh, worthwhile information? For me to consume, how thoughtful. So I do think there's a falling apart, coming together, falling apart, coming together phenomenon. Let me take uh, one of your quotes uh, terribly out of context from the book Uh um, and have your response to it. You say, uh, we have become a nation of moral imbeciles. Mm -hmm. Um, What are you talking about? Um, How does morality fit into uh, the way that we participate, consume politics and news about politics? The most important moral judgments that we make are not about our enemies. The most important moral judgments that we make are about our friends. The most important moral judgments that we make are not about, like, how about this? I'm pretty comfortable about uh, what I think about Vladimir Putin, right? <laughs> I, I, have, I have strong and clear feelings about Vladimir Putin's character. Got it. Um, where it's important, though is to police yourself and your side, your organization, the people who you agree with, and what we have because of the siloed media. So if you, let's say you only watched Fox or you only watched MSNBC, the events at Donald Trump's uh, Florida home and club are are happening in two totally different worlds, right? Uh, On one side... It is a raid by a lawless justice department uh, bent on destroying Donald Trump, and it's the scandal of the century. If you're watching the other feed, you're being told that the virtuous, heroic justice department and the eminently good Merrick Garland, his middle name is Fair, uh, is, is there to do only the work of the people and, by the way, guys, it's really much bigger than this. It's been interesting. It was interesting to watch how much of left-facing media is making the same mistakes with Trump that they did throughout the Mueller investigation. Uh, the, it, it, my, uh, my friend and one of my idols, uh, Charles Krauthammer, as he said about um, the allegations of collusion, uh, 
with Russia uh, in reference to the Trump Tower meeting that the, with the Russian operative for the express purpose of getting dirt on Hillary Clinton, uh, as uh, Charles Kay said, botched collusion is still collusion. It was evident and obvious on its face. It's, or Trump's second impeachment, or first impeachment. Sorry, I get them all mixed up. Uh, Trump's first impeachment, it was there on its face, right? You did not need, the, there was no probe that was necessary. We had the transcript of Donald Trump using his office and using the power of the president to get dirt on his rival. He was using his office. Now, you could say, if you were a Republican, I see it, and many Republicans did see this, and it is a morally defensible position. I see it, I disapprove of it, but I don't think it rises to the level of impeachment. I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to pass. That's fine, but a lot wouldn't even get to that point because we don't get the correct inputs. We are not, too many of us are not hearing views that respectfully disagree with our own. Uh, we have a lot of police, the two sides, and this is true, like how preposterous for CNN and Fox to have media criticism shows where they substantially criticize each other, right? Uh, and, and CNN has canceled their show. But the idea that you're going to have these two cable networks and rivals, like this just in, we think the other guys stink. Well, okay, you know, fine. But no, so what CNN says about Fox and what Fox says about CNN has no effect on the other side because nobody's hearing it. And we have become morally imbecilic for a lot of reasons. Uh, and part of it has to do with the, with the uh, mob mentality that social media connectedness allows and the power of that. But it's also because in our media diet, we're not hearing respectful, uh, earnest criticism in the way that we should. We should be hearing from voices that make us a little uncomfortable. As I tell people, if the news that you consume and the media that you consume in your life doesn't make you a little uncomfortable uh, from time to time, then you need to vary your diet because you shouldn't be, you shouldn't every, walk away every day and say, yep, all of my priors are correct. Everything that I think is true, I'm good and they're bad. We'll leave it there. Uh, the book is Broken News, Why the Media Rage Machine Divides America and How to Fight Back by Chris Steyerwald. Chris, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Uh, for C-SPAN, I am Matt Welch. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. <laughs>